0: Please uh, do take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that passage that Gary read to us, verses 1 to 7. I just want to say a word of apologies to those who are in the wings. Uh, last Sunday night with uh, the generator running and power dips, our, our wing speakers were blown. Um, so they're in for repairs. Uh, the good news is that this past week their solar was installed. Um, so hopefully we won't have those kinds of problems again, Lord willing, going forward. Um, but if it is a bit quiet for you in the wings, uh, please feel free to just uh, move closer into the middle uh, if you're battling to hear. So the passage of Scripture has been read to us, uh, 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and uh, the focus this morning as we come to this theme, uh, the, the broader theme of our series is contending for the gospel, uh, but particularly today as we come to verses 1 to 7, we're going to be considering God's purposes in prayer, uh, God's purposes in prayer. And so I want to just start this morning by asking you some questions about prayer. Let me just start very generally with what is prayer, uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. What is prayer? Well, simply put, prayer is just talking to God. But I think more specifically, prayer is the communication of a believer with the God who is his Savior, Lord, Father, and Friend, So yes, unbelievers can pray, they can cry out to God in times of need, and there is a sense in which God is the Father of all humanity. God hears the prayers of all. But as we consider prayer this morning, we are thinking particularly of communication between a believer and the one who is our personal God and Savior and Lord and Father and Friend. But now let me move on to just a couple of specific questions about your own prayer life. If you're taking notes, maybe write these questions down and uh, spend some time thinking on them uh, as you go into this week. Firstly, how often do you pray? How often do you pray? Once a day? Three times a day? At mealtimes? All the time? Or very seldom? How often do you pray? Secondly, who do you pray for? When you do pray, do you pray only for yourself? Do you pray for your uh, family and close friends? Or do you even pray for your enemies or people in power? Do you pray for the poor and the spiritually lost? And when last have you prayed for the church? Thirdly, what do you pray for? Your immediate physical needs, I'm sure. Do you tend to only pray for the blessing of yourself and those that are close to you? Do you pray for your own spiritual growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you pray for the salvation of sinners? And then fourthly, why do you pray? Why do you pray? If you pray, I hope you pray, but if you do, why do you pray? Because it's the right thing to do, because, well, that's what Christians do, it's it's the religious thing to do, we pray. You pray because you hope it might help. Well, we're going to consider all of these questions this morning in Paul's letter to Timothy as he starts a new section in the letter which focuses particularly on how the church should function. I hope you'll recall from our previous two studies that Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to sort out some major issues in the church. Issues which were brought about by false teachers, by those who were leading the congregation away from the truth, away from God's word and away from the gospel of grace. The context is one where we have this group known as the Judaizers, or if it wasn't the particular group known as the Judaizers, it was at least a similar kind of group, uh, who were teaching that in order to be saved, uh, you had to adopt all the Old Testament Jewish laws and regulations, uh, and you had to effectively convert to a kind of Christianized Judaism. So there was an exclusivity in the the thinking of these Judaizers, an exclusivity which was tied up in observing the Old Testament law. They believed and they taught that you could kind of reach a a higher level of spirituality by observing all the religious customs and practices and laws and festivals uh, of the old covenant of Judaism. And so the gospel was under attack, and as a result, the spiritual life of the church was in danger, Paul says, of being shipwrecked. Uh, And so Paul firstly then commanded those teachers of the Lord to be stopped, Uh, and then he went on, as we saw in chapter 1, to lay a solid foundation of truth, followed by a foundation of grace in the gospel. And now Paul wants to move on to give Timothy some specific instructions about the functioning of the church, the the orderly worship and the structure of the church, which if followed will not only correct the errors which had crept into the church, but would set in place a healthy church, a, a church which would be able to function as God intended. I pray that it's our desire as a church to function as God intended, to be healthy as God purposed. And so as we come to this letter, we should have hearts which are eager to learn and understand what Paul uh, wrote to Timothy for the benefit of the church. And so the first thing that Paul turns to uh, to address in this letter is the issue of prayer. And particularly prayer as the church, as the gathered church of Jesus Christ. His focus in these verses is on corporate prayer, corporate prayer as the church. But obviously, we as the church are made up of individuals. And so what is right and proper when we gather as the church is surely the overflow of hearts uh, which then pray Uh, individually and as families we will never pray rightly and properly as a church if we are not praying rightly and properly uh, individually and so Paul is setting before us some very important teaching regarding how we should pray as a church what should direct us not only corporately but then also privately as we go home today so in the first place, Paul wants us to see the importance of prayer in verse 1. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, hopefully you've got your Bibles open. Chapter 2, verse 1 is closely connected to what has gone before in chapter 1 because it starts with a therefore word. Uh, it's not right up front as, as we sometimes see, but it's the word in the ESV, then. I think the NIV and the CSB also say then. Uh, This is an important connecting word. It's important because it shows us that what Paul is about to say is not a completely new idea or thought, but it flows out of the correction of the false teachers in chapter 1. It flows out of the foundation of grace and truth which has just been laid in chapter 1. And so he says, First of all, then. First of all, therefore. Therefore. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now in, in the light of what I've just said about grace and truth I now place before you the importance of prayer corporate prayer in the church it is a matter of first importance. First of all here is not simply a reference to time uh, it is that But it's more than that. Paul's not simply saying first pray and then do this or do that. No, he's saying that prayer is a matter of highest priority, of first importance. Now let me ask you this. Do you think praying corporately will be a matter of first importance in our church if praying privately is not a matter of first priority? In your own lives? I don't think so. If we seldom pray individually, if we seldom pray together as families, we will not see the importance of corporate prayer as the people of God. We must remember that Paul is wanting to help Timothy as the series title says, to contend for the gospel in Ephesus. And so he set priorities for Timothy. The foundation of the church, chapter one, is truth and grace. It's the word of God and the gospel. There should be no arguments there. But then he moves on to start giving instructions to the the, the life of a healthy church, and he starts off with the matter of prayer. Prayer as of primary importance so not only is prayer a matter of first importance but it is also a matter of priority in time in in sequence we are meant to to start all that we do with prayer the gospel is under attack in Ephesus the gospel is under attack in our world false teachers are leading people astray spiritual lives are being shipwrecked and what does Paul urge Timothy to do to pray to pray Now, in order to to show the all-encompassing nature of prayer, Paul uses four words uh, for praying in verse 1. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Supplications really is divine petitions to God, recognizing that the solution to our needs comes from God. That's supplications. Prayers would be the general word for talking to God, laying all your requests before God, Intercessions is specifically prayers prayed to God on behalf of another. So praying to God as you come alongside others and you bring their needs to God. And then thanksgiving is the general spirit of our praying which always recognizes the grace and the source of that grace to us which is God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think we should be making too much distinction here in such a way that we kind of divide up our praying artificially into these different categories and making sure that every single time we pray, all four of these categories are covered. I think Paul's just using here the, the variety of words that encompass a healthy prayer life. And he's urging us as the church to offer up our prayers of all kinds as a matter of first importance. In the second place, Paul moves on to show us who we should be praying for, Uh, and that's in verse 1 and 2, and also uh, is a hint to that in verse 7. Verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul explains that as believers, as the church, we should be praying for all people. And then he specifically singles out kings and those in positions of leadership and authority. So let's start with the all people. What does Paul mean by this? Is he referring to us praying for all seven billion people on the planet, or whatever the number may be? And I don't think that anyone would argue for that. It's not what Paul means. The, The context of the passage is crucial for us to understand what he means. Paul was writing to Timothy to deal with these elitist teachers of the law who were proposing that you had to almost convert back to Judaism or you at least had to adopt a Jewish identity and food laws and practices in order to be saved. And so it seems in the context of this Jewish exclusivity... Now that's something that's always plagued the people of Israel throughout biblical history. It continues to plague the people of Israel today. Jewish exclusivity. It seems that there was this drifting away from the gospel. From the fact that God chose Israel from the beginning to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Including the Gentiles. And so Paul here is countering a kind of inward focus. That easily creeps into any grouping of human beings but especially into religious groups where we focus on ourselves as somehow better than others. We are more deserving of God's attention and blessing than others. We've got it right, they've got it wrong and so God must, must bless us and not them and in doing that we lose sight of the reason for God saving us. We saw this last week that God saved us so that we might be examples of his grace and patience to others who would then also believe in him. And so into this context of exclusivism, elitism, or separation, inward focusness, Paul urges the church in Ephesus To not just pray for themselves and those who belong to their little congregation, but to pray for all people. People of every kind, as he wrote even in the book of Ephesians. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, educated, illiterate, rich or poor. We are to pray for all people. All kinds of people should be prayed for as a matter of urgency and priority. So already here we have a point of practical application that in our praying, that we are to guard against an inward-focused exclusivity as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church, an inward-focused self-centeredness which only prays for for us and, and for our church activities and for our missionaries and for our ministries and for our people. No, says Paul, we are to pray for all people. But then in verse 2, he singles out kings and rulers of the land. Now, what is amazing to consider is that at the time of writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, they were living under the most terrible and cruel dictator of the Roman Empire, a man called Nero. This was the guy who had his own mother murdered. Uh, He lived in utter extravagance and ruled with tyranny. He was the one who blamed the great Roman fire in AD 64 on the Christians and then had them burned alive as scapegoats. This is the man whom Paul is urging the church in Ephesus to pray for. As a matter of first importance, to offer supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for Nero And the rest of the corrupt and power hungry rulers of the Roman Empire. Certainly puts praying for our own president and government into perspective, doesn't it? Or our lack of praying for our president and our government. You see, Nero was not only responsible for keeping the the Jewish nation under oppression, uh, but he was particularly hateful of and opposed to the Christians. And so it seems that under the influence of these false teachers, the church was ignoring to pray for Nero. The church was ignoring to pray for the Roman authorities. We are harping back to Judaism. How can we pray for these Roman oppressors? And it does seem that Paul may have had some kind of prophetic insight into some of our church WhatsApp groups where only negative things and negative gossip is circulated about our president and the government. But it seems that Paul was targeting here their their general lack of concern, not only for their president or for their ruler and for the government, but for their their lack of concern for the salvation of the Gentiles. If we go down to verse 7, Paul has to emphasize to them his specific apostolic call his appointment by God was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles he says for I was appointed a a preacher and an apostle I'm telling the truth I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So contrary to the teaching of the Judaizers who were trying to focus salvation on Jewish laws and Jewish practices and the exclusivity and and elitism um, of their little holy huddle, Paul is declaring very boldly that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, to teach the Gentiles about the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. And he's urging the Ephesian church to be a people of prayer to pray for, for all Jews and Gentiles, and yes, including the pagan kings and rulers and those in authority over them. The next place I want us to see that Paul teaches us the purpose of prayer in verse 2 to 4. And it might seem from verse 2 that Paul's main concern in praying for the, the kings and government is As it says there, so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now this is certainly a good desire of Paul. It's a good desire that we should have and and we know from God's word that when kings, when governments rule, lead the land according to God's word, according to the principles of justice and righteousness and equity, then the whole land prospers that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we are meant to, to desire and pray for. We are approaching an election year when the stability of our country is threatened by those who seek to manipulate things for power and political gain. And so it is good and it is proper that we as a church gather together to to pray for our rulers, to pray for our governments, our political parties, that we seek the peace and the blessing of God in our land, God on our leaders. We want to live in a safe and secure land. We want peace and justice and dignity. We want things that resemble the kingship of God. And so we should be praying to God for that end. But is that the main reason for Paul to urge us to pray for all people, especially kings? Simply so that this life, this life which is but a fleeting vapor, can be peaceful and quiet. And I would argue that that's not Paul's main point. Paul now gives us the primary reason for calling us as God's people to pray. He says in verse 3, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now the English here is not too clear what exactly Paul is referring to when he says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Is he referring to leading peaceful and quiet lives, which has just come before? Or is he referring to something else? I think the Greek sentence is much clearer, that what is good and pleasing to God is our prayer for all people in verse 1. And verse 2 is really just kind of a bullet point. It's an aside to the main point that is made in verse 1. So let's read verse 1 and verse 3 side by side, and we'll see the main thrust of Paul's purpose for our praying. Let me bring that up. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see the continuity there. So the all people who we are to pray for in verse 1 are the same all people whom God desires to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul says, I want you as a church to make prayer a priority and to pray for all kinds of people from all walks of life, from all religious backgrounds. Why? Because this is pleasing to God who desires that all those people from every language group and cultural group and racial group and social group, they should all come to salvation through a knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing here is not only cutting across the exclusivity of the false teachers to show that salvation is for for everyone from every group of the world, but he's showing us that that this is the main purpose for our praying, that people might be saved. This sheds light in not only how we are to pray for all people, but especially how we are to be praying for our leaders. Because he says, pray for all people, especially kings and rulers and governments. What for? They need the gospel for their salvation. They need the truth and the grace of Jesus. And so we should be praying for President Ramaphosa. We should be praying for our government. We should be praying in the same way that the Ephesians were to pray for Nero and the Roman Empire, We have no excuse and no reason to do otherwise. We are to pray for them, not against them. There's a tendency in the church today to see the government as an agent of Satan, and we are to pray against them. No, says Paul, we are to pray for them. We are to pray for their salvation, not selfishly, simply so that we can have a peaceful and quiet life. That's a blessing, that's, that's wonderful. But pray for them so that they and many others in every sector of our society will be saved. When last have you prayed specifically for our president, for those, our mayor, for minister of energy and transport and electricity and every other department in government specifically for them by name to be saved I must confess I haven't done that in a long time we get so busy criticizing what they're not doing and how they should be removed, not realizing that if they were removed, someone else who's an unbeliever is gonna come into their place. Unless we are particularly praying for their salvation, nothing is going to change. So the essence of what Paul is urging here is that as the church, we should be making prayer a matter of first priority, and the focus of our praying should be evangelistic should be centered on the salvation of God coming to all people. This means practically that as a church, our praying should not primarily, our corporate praying, shouldn't be focused primarily on the needs of individuals in the church community. But our praying should be focused on the salvation of God coming to all people. So our praying for the church, our praying for its ministries, our praying for the the holiday club that's coming up, it should be focused on the grace of God in the gospel coming to all those who attend the church, who attend youth groups, who attend Bible land, who attend small groups, who attend the holiday club, that God would send people and that he would do a work of salvation in their hearts. Our praying should be that those who lead our small groups, those who preach and teach, would be helped by God to clearly and boldly declare the truth of the gospel in each and every opportunity that they have, so that those in their groups would come to Christ. Our praying for our missionaries should be for God's special anointing and blessing to be on each of our missionaries so that the lost will be saved and will come to know the truth. Our praying for our city and our community should be focused on souls. Yes, we can pray for the economy, we can pray for jobs, we can pray for peace, we can pray for law and order. Those are all good things, but the primary goal of all of those things should be the salvation of people's souls. So as we pray for our mayor and as we pray for our president and the government, we need to pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way that they would be equipped to lead this land and its people into peace and prosperity where the gospel can flourish and the blessing of God can be known by all. See, the heart of God in the gospel is the salvation of sinners. We saw this last time. Just look back at chapter one, verse 15. Chapter 1 verse 15 Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, the foremost. Now he says something equally amazing that God desires this salvation of sinners to be extended to all people from every tribe and nation and language across the face of the earth. Now think about that. In between Jesus Christ coming to save sinners and in between the actual time in history when sinners are saved, what happens? What's the glue between Jesus coming and people believing in Him and coming to saving faith? The glue is the prayers of God's people. God is saying, I've sent my son Jesus into the world to save sinners. I desire that salvation come to people from every nation. So pray. Pray that the knowledge about the truth and the faith, the truth about and faith in Jesus Christ will come to all people. So Paul's told us about the importance of prayer, the subjects of prayer and the purpose for prayer. In the final place, he wants us to see the reason for prayer in verses five and six. Why should prayer be such a high priority for us as the church? Why does Paul urge that this kind of evangelistic praying be a matter of primary importance? Well, the answer is in verse 5 and 6. Four, because. Because there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper reason. Now, these two verses are what makes Christianity very unpopular in our world today. Not so much that there is one God, but that there is only one way to God for all people alike. One way which is through faith in Jesus Christ as our mediator. In actual fact, as we consider what Paul has detailed in chapter one and two, there is no other religion in all the world which is actually as open and as inclusive of all people as Christianity. Jesus not only accepts all people from every race and tribe and language and social background, but he even accepts the very worst of sinners, as Paul has made clear. No one is outside of the the call and the offer of the Christian gospel. But we know that the hearts and the minds of people are blinded to the fact that there is only one way to that God. There is only one way to be made right with this God and it is through the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus. It's only through a knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ and accepting his salvation as a free gift of grace that anyone can be saved. So the invitation of Christianity is inclusive of everyone. But access to the Father is exclusive only through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And men and women and boys and girls, their hearts are blind to this truth unless what happens? Unless the Spirit of God makes them alive. Unless the Spirit of God lifts the veil of darkness from their hearts to see this truth. But we know that people will never turn from their sinful ways to God. Unless the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sins and gives them a heart of repentance, and we know that no one will stop trusting in himself for salvation and his own efforts unless God gives him the supernatural gift of faith. Listen to how Paul puts this in two Corinthians chapter four, verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It's it's hidden from those who are lost. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so we proclaim not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why? For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Men and women's hearts and minds are blinded. But we believe. How did we believe? Because we're so much better than those pagan unbelievers out there. No, says Paul, we believe because God shone his light into our hearts and revealed to us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if God must give spiritual life, if God must lift the veil of darkness, if God must convict of sin, if God must grant the the gift of faith and repentance, then that is what we should be praying for. This is the kind of praying, says Paul, that is good, that pleases God, because it recognizes that God is the source of our salvation. And in praying to Him for this work to be done, He will receive all the glory. Yes, of course we can pray for many other practical things. We can pray regarding the struggles and the challenges of life. We can pray for one another for for work and for health and for recovery from surgery and all these things. And, And this is the kind of praying that usually occupies our praying time in our small groups as we share our burdens with one another and as we pray for one another on that level. But the primary purpose for praying as a church. Paul says, should be for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to be made known among all the peoples. Now, maybe this explains why we perhaps so seldom see genuine conversions these days where boys and girls and men and women who never knew Jesus Christ come to saving faith in Him and are reconciled to God Maybe it's not happening because we are not praying for it to happen. We're not calling upon God to shine His light into their hearts. Let me read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the, the greatest preacher of the 19th century. He wrote a book called The Soul Winner. And he says this, One more thing. The soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you will catch his spirit. You will be fired with the same flame that burned in his breast and consumed his life you will weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. And if you cannot speak as eloquently as he did, yet shall there be about what you say something of the same power which in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the consciences of men. My dear hearers, especially you members of the church, I'm always anxious that any of you should begin to lie upon your oars and take things easy in the matters of God's kingdom. There are some of you, I bless you and I bless God at the remembrance of you who are in season and out of season in earnest for winning souls. You are the truly wise. But I fear there are others whose hands are slack, who are satisfied to let me preach, but do not themselves preach, who take these seats, occupy these pews, and hope that the cause goes well, but that is all you do. As we close this morning, what priority do you give to prayer? To this kind of praying which Paul is urging of Timothy and of the church of which Spurgeon urged his congregation? Why are we not gathering as a church to cry out to God for the souls of the lost? Why are we not storming the gates of heaven, pleading with God that what He did for us, He would do for others? Why are we not praying for our children, parents? Church, why are we not praying for the community in Zonspreit, 280 of whom come onto our property every day of the week at Kingsway School? Why are we not praying for the lost in Honeydew and Rand Park Ridge? Why are we not praying for our president and our government and those in authority? Why has prayer become, it seems, the lowest priority for believers and for the church? Let me close with the words of Richard Baxter. Um, Shane's not the only one who can quote Puritans. Um, Richard Baxter could have written this statement. It was written in the 17th century. Could have been written of our generation right now because humanity doesn't change. Baxter said this, Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or of men in you, let them yearn towards your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize them, and if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that you cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the Word of God and the danger of sinners, then why are you Christians yourselves? But if you do believe it, Why do you not bestir yourself to helping of others? Do you not care who is damned so you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Dost thou live close by them or meet them in the streets or labor with them or travel with them or sit and talk with them and say nothing to them about their souls or the life to come? If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. And will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? What a challenge. Most, if not all of us who are Christians today are here today by the grace of God because someone else prayed for your salvation. Someone else prayed for my salvation. Pleaded with God to shine His light into my dark heart, into your dark heart. Are we to be pitied this morning as grace hoarders so grateful for being saved, and then we keep it all to ourselves? Or are we going to become deeply dependent, grace-fueled prayer warriors for the cause of Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Now if you're saying, Clinton, I'm I'm stirred by what God's word has said to me today, I want to pray more, I wanna pray more corporately as the church for the salvation of sinners, when can I do that? Next Sunday evening, next Sunday evening, six o'clock, we're going to devote our whole evening service to praying for the holiday club. And I trust that this message will shape our praying for the holiday club, not just that we'll have enough hot chocolate and cappuccino sachets for the leaders. Yes, we need to have those things but that we will devote our time to praying for perhaps 300 or 400 children, most of whom are unbelievers, coming onto this property from probably 200, 250 unbelieving homes in our community, and they will be entrusted to our care for a week. What an opportunity for the gospel. What an opportunity for God to shine the light of Jesus Christ into their hearts. Won't you join us next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, as we gather to pray. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do come before you this morning and we want to confess our sins before you as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church for our lack of praying for all people, for kings and rulers and those in authority that they might be saved, that they might come to know knowledge of the truth of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Lord so often we can be so busy doing ministry and supporting various causes these are all good things that you've given to us but we do not pray we do not pray that you would be at work that you would bless and and multiply and and convict and shine the light of salvation into the hearts of people Forgive us, we pray, Lord. Won't you stir within us hearts which pray more? Not pray more just for ourselves and our families and our friends and our circumstances, but pray more kingdom-mindedly. Won't you give us a, a heart that weeps for the lost? Because how will we pray for those that we are not concerned for? So, Lord, we do ask and pray that as a church, you would cause us to, to enter into a new season of spiritual health as we grow more and more as a church which prays, prays ultimately for your name to be glorified in and through all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name.